Hi, my name is Jackie. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 8. I play hard because that's how I do everything. I always push myself to be the best that I can be. Type 1 diabetes does not stop me from doing the things that I like to do. Hello and welcome to Teen 1D, the podcast for teenagers and young adults living with type 1 diabetes. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medicine advice or treatment. My guest for today is Amy Hespichel, an enhanced practice dietitian, diabetes educator, and coordinator for the University of Chicago Cobra Diabetes Center Teen and Transits Program, a unique program for adolescents and teens with diabetes. She speaks internationally on all diabetes topics, especially children and teens with diabetes, insulin pumps, and continuous glucose monitors. She's actively involved in the American Association of Diabetes Educators in the Academy of Nutrition and Dietics as well as several international groups with diabetes and pre-diabetes. She was named a 2018 Illinois AADE Diabetes Educator of the Year and also received the 2018 Pan-Arab Congress on Diabetes Award for Excellence on her contribution to diabetes care and education in the Middle East and in the USA. She's reviewed for multiple diabetes publications as well, and has served on numerous task force and advisory boards nationwide. So how are you doing today? I am great, Jackie. I'm just so honored to be on this with you. Oh, thank (laughs) Thank you. you. (laughs) Okay, so as some background information, I'm a patient at the University of Chicago Kovler Diabetes Center. Amy is a certified diabetes educator and registered dietitian at the Kovler Diabetes Center. Amy has been my certified diabetes educator from the time I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes nine years ago when I was eight years old. To get us started, can you tell us how you decided to become a registered dietitian and then how you decided to become a diabetes educator as well? I know that there might be some people looking to go yeah. into that field, so I think it'd be interesting to hear no, your story. Totally, totally. Yeah, the more the merrier. Come on, everybody. Okay. We need more. We need more. Uh, so I became uh, a registered dietitian uh, it, more because I was originally going to go to medical school. And, um, you know, one of the endocrinologists that I was working with at the time, he said, you know, Amy, you love working with people with diabetes. If you become a physician, you won't be able to spend as much time um, with, uh, you know, with people, you know, again, you, you don't spend as much time as, as uh, a dietitian or a nurse or um, a, a diabetes educator. So again, I, that, that kind of conversation kind of led me to, to not go to, to medical school um, and, you know, continue as a dietitian. Now, certified diabetes educator has, uh, they've changed the terminology. And so now we're called certified diabetes care and education specialists. Uh, that's a mouthful. Uh, but you know, again, for the intensive purposes, we're going to go with, I'm a diabetes educator. So, but just so all of you know, you might see some things that say CDCES instead of CD. Uh, but uh, again, um, basically how I became a diabetes educator, um, I needed a master's thesis. Uh, and so I, <laughs> I was working in oncology and, uh, you know, I, I, they said I had to do something I knew nothing about. So I walked across the street to the diabetes center that was at the hospital on the, on the far South side of, of Chicago. And I said, I need some help. I need some people with diabetes to work with. And she's, uh, the director who was also a dietitian said, I'll do you one better. I'll give you a job. And I loved it so much. Uh, 23 years later, here I am still working with people with diabetes. So, uh, you know, certainly how 
how you become a certified diabetes care and education specialist is you uh, either are, you, you go to school as a dietitian, you go to school as a nurse or a pharmacist or a social worker or an exercise physiologist. And then you have to take uh, a thousand hours of direct patient care. So yeah, again, you work with people like you, Jackie, and all of you that may be listening right now. Um, and so um, then you take an exam and then you become certified. So that's, that's kind of the, the, the big picture of how I, how I became where I am today and how you get there. Do you have any advice for people who may not be sure on what they'd like to study or how to get involved in as a career as a diabetes educator? Oh, no. Good, good question. You know, I, I always ask that of myself, you know, I, you know, again, one thing that we have to acknowledge about um, our brains and, you know, maturity of our brains, um, they actually fully grow by 25. That's, that's a lot to take in, you know, like, hi, I'm going to college and I still have to decide what I'm going to be when I grow up before my brain is actually fully grown, you know? So, uh, you know, <laughs> I know that's a, that's a lot, a lot to think about for all you guys, but um you know, I think, you know, looking at, you know, nursing or pharmacy or, um, you know, or any of those types of disciplines that you can go to school for and get a bachelor of science, a master of science, um, you know, again, dip your toe in first. So, you know, I strongly encourage that, you know, I know we're in COVID right now and, you know, the diabetes camps aren't uh, available, um, but go and volunteer you know, become, uh, you know, again, a, a counselor's aide or a counselor at some of those, um, go to your local American Diabetes Association or your local JDRFs um, and ask them how you can get involved because then, then you're going to get uh, more access to other uh, other diabetes groups. So then you can really say, Hey, can I, you know, shadow you for a day, um, at your diabetes center or, you know, again, the endocrinology office. So I would start there because again, um, that's a, it's a lot to take in and say, yep, I'm gonna, I've decided what I'm going to be at age 18, um, without really knowing what it is. So I would start there. Okay. And here's just a question that I kind of have. Sure. Add to now that I really think about it, what age are some of the patients that you can see as a diabetes educator? Oh, um, I've seen from birth through ninety. I think the the oldest person that I've seen in the 20 ish years that I've worked was like 95. So, you wow. know, it runs the gamut, you know, again, I think that, you know, I I've been fortunate because, you know, I've worked with, you know, with kids and teens and, and children and infants and toddlers for so long. But, uh, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm now, you know, have the, the ability at the COVID diabetes center because we see both pediatric and adult and I'm seeing it all. Uh, so it's kind of fun, you know, to be able to, to see the lifespan, um, uh, with, with type one. And here you talked about such a variety in age. I'm sure you see just such a variety in the way that people take care of themselves too, with type one or type two, whatever it may be. Is there a certain way that you try to push people to handle things or do you just let them do it on their self? Well, um, I'm not one to push anybody, you know, again, I have to say there's, there's a, there's a website that I always thought was such a cool phrase and it's called, it says your diabetes may vary. I strongly believe in that phrase that there is no one person that is going to be the same as another. And so if we, 
give the same recommendations and do the same things with every single person, it's just not going to fit. So I like to work with the person that's in front of me. Uh, and we, I'm, I'm a strong proponent of collaboration. You know, again, yes, I, I'm a healthcare professional. I work with an endocrinologist. Uh, and, you know, again, they are, you know, he's an expert in his fields. You know, again, I consider myself an expert in diabetes, but person with diabetes is the expert in their diabetes. So I'm all about what do you want to do? Here's let's lay out a plan. Let's talk about what's going to work well for you. Uh, so that's really how I like to work. Uh, but again, that's hard sometimes, you know, again, I'm thinking for all of you guys out there, um, you know, talking with adults, um, so you don't get them angry, or, you know, you don't want to tell them how you really feel. I want to stop you right there and say, do it. You are the one who, who has diabetes. You're the one that lives with this 24 hours a day. If you're not comfortable with a recommendation or a conversation that you're having with your healthcare professional, say, whoa, I'm not sure that I can do that. Or can we try something else? Um, never feel like you can't do that. You know, again, this is your diabetes and it sucks. I don't have diabetes and I know it sucks. Come on. I mean, let's not pretend that it's anything but, but again, my job is to make it suck just a little bit less. And so again, by having those honest conversations with your healthcare professionals um, is going to help you um, to, to kind of make it suck less. Thank you for that. So what is the most common way that people take care of their diabetes? Uh, you know, I am very lucky. We have so many people using diabetes technology. Um, we have almost 80% of the people that I work with um, are using an insulin pump. Um, you know, 75 to 80% of them are using continuous glucose monitors. Um, and then, you know, within that group, we have probably 40% of them that are using some kind of hybrid closed loop or do it yourself, uh, system. Uh, so yeah, again, I, I can't say enough about diabetes technology because again, we know that it can improve your quality of life. You know, again, uh, certainly, you know, the, the big buzz is always like, let's get your A1C down. We have to get your blood sugar down. We have to reduce your risk of, of low blood sugar, which all of those things are important. I'm not saying, but I, I need your brains to be, you know, happy about who you are and, and where you are and, and enjoy life. And so um, a lot of these technologies can, can help people be a little bit happier about um, just living life. And if I if I had to choose between um, pumps and CGMs, I would I would go with CGMs um, every time. Okay. Now, if somebody would say, you know, uh, you know, I don't really want to wear so many things. I don't want to be, you know, a robot. You know, what are you doing to me? Uh, again, we can say without a doubt that continuous glucose monitors um, have a much bigger impact on overall uh, blood sugars, reducing risk of low blood sugars, uh, and also improving, you know, your quality of life, just making you happier overall and satisfied. So, uh, because again, CGMs give you, you know, that comfort of, okay, I'm not going to die overnight or I'm, yes. you know, I'm not going to go low. So those, uh, that's typically what I would, you know, that's my, that's my, that's my line <laughs> when it comes to technology. <laughs> You also mentioned earlier that you take care of just mostly kids and teens. Are there any certain accommodations that you would suggest to teenagers and young adults when they're going off to, for example, maybe a boarding school, college or trade school or joining the workforce? Sure. Uh, 
let's start with school first, you know, again, so if we talk about, you know, reasonable accommodations, whether something, you know, um, safe at school is a American Diabetes Association kind of um, uh, movement that, that kind of gives the schools, you know, every piece of information that they need to, to um, work with somebody with diabetes. Uh, but again, if I, if I'm going to say, you know, with schools, uh, you know, again, making sure that you can handle your own diabetes without the supervision of a nurse. Um, sometimes that doesn't necessarily, you know, fly with the schools. Um, but again, my, a reasonable accommodation is yes, I can treat my low blood sugars in the classroom. I can treat my high blood sugars in the classroom. I'm allowed to have my phone with me because that's what um, the CGM is connected to. Uh, again, I'm allowed to have some alarms and alerts beeping because it's going to alert me if I'm going too high and reduce my risk of ketoacidosis. Uh, again, having food in the classroom. Uh, again, um, those are like big accommodations for, you know, just for schools. Uh, I also like to take one extra layer and it, because we think of, you know, again, I know SATs and ACTs are pretty much kind of going to the wayside now, but um, you know, again, when we think of um, examinations, um, so any exams, um, you know, any standardized exams um, allowing for something called stop the clock testing. And, and again, there's two ways that you can, you can do this. So stop the clock means, I have a lower or a high, they're stopping the clock. So again, you're not going to waste any of that extra time that you have on that exam. Um, they won't restart it until you feel better. Um, I like stop the clock because again, we know with low blood sugar, it takes 45 to 60 minutes for your brain to recover. Uh, so again, that's why the stop the clock is important. Now, there's another thing that um, they do have for exams is called one and a half times. I'm not really a fan of one and a half times because again, like I said, you know, if you're low, it takes 45 to 60 minutes for your brain to recover. So, you know, again, um, that's why I usually kind of push for stop the clock. So um, those are the biggies that I tend to recommend for, you know, when we talk about boarding schools, um, grade schools, high schools, um, you know, middle schools, you know, so now college. So college doesn't have kind of the same uh, like 504 plans, IEPs, diabetes medical management plans that they have in schools. Um, but they do have something called an office of disabilities um, or a disability office. You want to make sure that you are, once you know where you're going to college, you're reaching out to them. Because again, you want to be on their list um, that, you know, again, you have diabetes and that you may require some accommodations. This is not an in any way saying that there's weakness or anything wrong with you. And so I want to make that very clear because I know the term opposite disability sounds kind of weird, but, you know, again, they are a really good ally because what they do is that they consolidate all of those accommodations that I also recommend. Um, so what I recommended in school, in, in grade school, middle school, and high school, I would recommend the same for college. And again, that stop the clock testing. If you have a low um, that you have, um, you know, perhaps a note taker for class, um, you know, again, but what that does by signing up with the Office of Disabilities, your professors then know that you have diabetes. Um, and, you know, again, it does sometimes give you a little more access um, to, to that they understand that you know, you're not going to be, you know, balking the system or anything, but, you know, if you need a little extra help, they'll be able to be there or the TA or whoever is in there. So that's typically what I'm going to recommend for college. Now, work, uh, again, the Americans with Disabilities Act is, again, a national act that basically says they can't discriminate against you. 
Uh, and so they should, they, they are by law, they have to give you reasonable accommodations. So those reasonable accommodations, again, are all typically the same as what we uh, would recommend. Of course, you're not going to be taking exams in your um, in your work, but you know, again, um, making sure that you um, are allowed to treat your lows. Um, you know, again, allowed to uh, to make sure that if you're if you're high, that you have you know extra time. Um, you know, while uh, eating meals. Um, in the atmosphere that we have today and the technology that we have, um, we're, we don't necessarily have to be as regimented about when we eat, because again, it's all about if you're using a pump or using basal insulin, um, you know, again, it's going to be a little bit flatter. So it's not going to be leading to as much hypoglycemia. Um, so we don't necessarily have to kind of, um, you know, say, well, you have to have lunch at this time, but um, certainly, you know, having snacks available and things like that. So again, really having a conversation kind of after you're hired, um, you know, again, Again, because, um, you know, again, another law that they can't ask you about those types of personal things during an interview. Um, after the fact, you know, again, then you can work with uh, human resources and say, yeah, you know, again, um, I, you know, these are some accommodations. But, you know, most of the time it's, you know, again, working with your supervisor and say, yeah, this is what I need. Um, there's also um, another um, piece that you can ask for kind of um, FMLA, which is Family Medical Leave Act. Um, some of your parents may have already done that with um, their works. Because um, again, um, if somebody has a chronic condition, um, you can fill this out through the human resources department. And it kind of allows you, you know, some time, like I need to go to my doctor's appointments. Um, I need to, you know, in the event that I'm sick, you know, again, in the event that I have a severe low, um, in the event that I'm hospitalized. So um, there are uh, lots of kind of pieces to this puzzle. But, you know, again, making sure that you do kind of follow those types of accommodations, um, because by law, you're, you're Going back to the college topic, what are your thoughts on college room assignments? Are there advantages to having a roommate or a single room without a roommate? You know, that is a really good question, Jackie. You know, I'd say personally, having a roommate uh, when you've never roomed with a person before is always a very interesting experience. But I think that kind of lends to the college experience. Now, uh, in working with as many college students as I've had, you know, again, I, I do find that uh, more male roommates who are assigned to like random strangers do much better than female <laughs> that are assigned to, you know, I mean, it just happens. I get it, but I don't want to generalize, but I've just seen that in all of my patients that, uh, you know, again, it doesn't always work well. You know, I mean, it's, it's all about personalities. Um, you know, so I think a couple things that you have to consider is that, you know, yes, while I say it's part of the college experience, uh, that roommate does need to understand that you are going to have perhaps audible alerts and alarms going off. Um, they don't need to be your mother or father, but, you know, again, they do need to understand the, the acute complications of diabetes. So how to treat a severe low. So again, they would need to possibly know how to use glucagon, um, you know, again, uh, and for, um, high blood sugar for ketoacidosis, you know, again, while they don't need to be doing anything, but they just need to be able to either go to the, the RA or the residence hall director, or, you know, again, so those are some things that you have to think about. It's sometimes really easy if you're just going to be rooming with a friend, you know, again, that, that I have to say works out really well for most people. Um, now on the flip side, 
you know, having your own room. Sometimes that's hard, you know, especially if you're, you're a freshman going in, um, there may not be, uh, you know, the availability uh, to, to do that. Um, even if, you know, your, your healthcare professional writes out uh, um, to the Office of Disabilities and asks that you that's that's required. Um, I I always have to have this conversation with people about having a single room of, you know, again, what happens if something happens, you know, again, so making sure that, you know, in the event that someone has a severe low or has ketoacidosis, do they have, you know, again, a plan in place that someone's, you know, a wellness check that they're just making sure that you're okay. Uh, And, you know, I mean, certainly, we can take diabetes out of the equation and talk about drugs and alcohol in a minute too. And, and know, that, that also adds a layer when it comes to, you know, safety, but, you know, I'd say certainly, you know, that, that is a kind of a bigger conversation of, you know, are you up for having a single room? You know, again, you're going to kind of miss out a little bit on the college experience. I mean, I do, I suggest having a roommate at least for a year, you know, just to, you know, if you've never roomed with someone before, it's a nice eye opening experience, but you know, again, and you might like it, um, but, you know, again, um, understanding that, you know, if you have a roommate, you're going to have to just give them kind of a down and dirty about, you know, your diabetes um, and are you comfortable about doing that? Um, and then also um, if you're, if you're going to go with a single, um, just making sure that, you know, you are, that you have a plan in place just for safety reasons in the unlikely event that there is a severe low or ketoacidosis. To go along with some of the things that you're talking about with the Dexcom alarms or any other CGM, I guess, too, do you have any recommendations on how to wake up to Dexcom alarms if you are a heavy sleeper? Because sometimes I know that I won't wake up to them because I certainly am a heavy sleeper. And I just know sometimes even when it's your phone is up on completely loud, it's still not that loud for middle of the night. No, no. And I know I'm like, where the heck's my phone? Um, So I don't know if you guys, I mean, certainly the Dexcom, um, I don't know if you guys have seen this recently, uh, but the Dexcom G6 has added like a ton of new um, alarms, um, sounds. So I have, I know this one's pretty annoying, but but you can do a baby cry. Isn't that awesome? That's just awful. but there's, I mean, there's a ton of different alerts that, that are available, but I really do strongly suggest, you know, again, everyone that I've worked with before, uh, you know, again, our subconscious is a pretty amazing thing. You know, again, um, we are well aware that we're safe uh, when we're with our family and our, our parents, you know, again, they're the ones that have always kind of taken care of things overnight. Um, and what I tend to find is that when, when people are kind of left to their own devices, um, that subconscious kind of kicks in and it's going to take time to kind of relearn that. Uh, but they're not as sound as a, of a sleeper as they were in the past that they're like, Oh my gosh, you know, after about a month, I was able to hear that alarm. You know, I was, you know, I, I kind of conditioned myself to do that now, you know, again, certainly play around with, you know, even on the weekends and things like mom, dad, don't, you know, don't bother me. Or, you know, again, uh, you know, sleep somewhere that it's not going to be annoying them um, and make sure that it's kind of, you know, near you. But there are several other apps that are available that, you know, even if you had, you know, using your, the receiver for the Dexcom, um, there are apps like there are earthquake apps that are available that are just crazy loud. I don't know if you've ever tried those, um, but it's, it's really trying a lot of different mediums 
of, you know, to, to try and wake you up. So whether it's vibration, whether it's, um, you know, again, crazy buzzing, whether it's a new type of alarm that's available on the Dexcom. Uh, you know, so, um, it's going to take some trial and error and it's going to take some time because it's reconditioning yourself, um, to do some of these things. And, and that's the one thing that, you know, I hear over and over that, yes, you know, again, most, most teenagers, God bless all of you that you can sleep through just about anything, (laughs) but it's going to take some time to just kind of, um, practice and, and, um, and try and relearn. So I don't have any good, I don't have any really, you know, like there's nothing that I can flip the switch and and, and change it immediately, but it's going to take a little practice. No, but thank you so much for that though. And I know that you are also the coordinator for the University of Chicago COVID Diabetes Center Teen in Transit program, and that this is a special, unique program for adolescents and teens with diabetes. Can you share with us some goals for and topics covered in the Teen in Transit program? And when you begin discussing these topics with adolescents and teens, sure, sure. So the the uh, this transition um, program, um, you know, again, we we kind of created it almost fifteen years ago, um, and what we've done even over the last six seven years is embed it into the diabetes education curriculum. So pretty much, you know, again, there's no, it's not necessarily a formal program that somebody goes through. It's already part of the program. We, we kind of created that just because it's just an easier way. So what it means is that everyone is uh, kind of hearing the same curriculum and then, you know, setting individual goals based on the person that's in front of us. So um, basically what it means is that, you know, that's the specific curriculum and topics that we're really kind of covering um, is, you know, certainly all the same things as somebody would when they were first diagnosed. uh, But you know, the biggies, you know, the sex, drug and drug and rock and roll talks um, are are the biggies that we start kind of um, insinuating into the conversation, um, usually around uh, middle school to high school. You know, again, hey, you guys all know this better than I do. What what's out there? You know, I don't I, I don't go into schools anymore, you know, again. But I mean, this stuff is is talked about, you know, without adults knowledge when we get that. And, you know, I mean, certainly. Um, you know, the reason that I bring it up, uh, you know, and I talk about it, um, and we're really kind of talking about it, um, you know, at least every try to insinuate it into every single visit is because, you know, I'm not condoning any of these things. It's just that uh, I want people to have the right information, because if you don't have the right information, you're going to look for it elsewhere, and then you get crap, you know, and so again, I'd rather that you just have um, some clear guidance um, that's going to work for you. So, you know, basically the tran- transition. So what does transition mean? Transition basically means moving from time point to time point. Transfer is basically leaving pediatric and going to adult. So um, transfer is just a moment in time. Transition basically starts the moment you're diagnosed with diabetes. And I think that's where, again, a lot of transition topics, they, they kind of only pinpoint it in the teen world. But I really feel that transition is about age-related responsibilities and maturity and um, increasing your, um, your independence um, all along your entire journey with diabetes. So 
it doesn't really stop. Um, and it really basically starts um, at the moment that you're, you're diagnosed. So, you know, again, as an eight-year-old, no, I'm not going to be talking about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I'm going to be talking about, hey, how are you doing poking your finger? How are you doing, uh, you know, injecting your own insulin? Um, what do you talk to you? You know, how do you, how do you explain this to your friends or, you know, again, or your the parents of your friends? Uh, and are you comfortable with that yet? You know, and if you're not, then we're going to wait. Uh, and then we kind of keep moving forward um, and, and increasing those, that independence of what do we do when we're driving? What do we do um, if we're at a party and we have alcohol? Uh, what do we do if there's drugs available? Uh, or, you know, again, I have a boyfriend or girlfriend and, you know, again, sex is a, is a conversation that we're going to have. And again, like I said, I'm not condoning any of these things. Uh, but again, one really important thing that you all have to understand is that there, there should, there's never any judgment about talking about this with your healthcare provider. Our job is to help you get the right answers, not condone what you're doing, but not judging you either. Um, and that's really important that there is no judgment here. Uh, but again, having that honest conversation about it. And I know it's kind of awkward. You know, again, I know I'm like, I don't like people squirming when I start talking about some of these topics. But, you know, again, uh, it's not you know, I don't, it, it, I don't want you to feel embarrassed. This is, you know, again, kind of that, the, the cone, the cone of silence, you know, again, um, that's why I like to recommend if you're not already doing it, um, start meeting with your healthcare provider, whether it's your diabetes educator or your endocrinologist, if you're comfortable alone, even for a little while. Um, and, and trying to have those conversations. It's not like you're trying to cut out your parents. That's not the point. But again, remember, we're talking about transition. We're trying, you want to be comfortable with that independence that you're getting, that, that the responsibilities of your diabetes self-management. And so again, that's all part of the package um, that you have to be able to, to have just a, even a small conversation of, you know, have, asking some pointed questions. And that also is a biggie is while, you know, again, I'm sometimes a, you know, fly by the seat of my pants kind of girl. And, you know, again, I may not have all my questions down beforehand, but I do recommend that, you know, jotting down like topics that you want to cover with your healthcare providers. Cause again, um, like I said, you guys are the person with diabetes. You live with this 24 hours a day. We work for you. And so again, it's important that you're getting your questions answered. Definitely. You also mentioned driving too. And I know oh. in the past that the Kovler yeah. Diabetes Center has held a program to discuss driving for teenagers with type one. Mm -hmm. Are there certain steps that teenagers and young adults should take to help keep them safe behind the wheel? Sure, sure. I know um, the, the driving program was actually um, was done by a lovely family um, with three kids with diabetes. Um, they always put it on with another, it's like Juvenile Diabetes No Limits Foundation. Wonderful, wonderful group down in Indiana. And I was always really um, fortunate that I was able to, to help with that program. Um, but due to COVID and other things, of course, it's not being held um, at this moment. But stay tuned. They're, they're, they're hoping to get something up in the next year. Um, but, you know, certainly with, with driving, um, you know, again, um, as I mentioned before, hypoglycemia, you know, so lo low blood sugar it takes 45 to 60 minutes for your brain to recover from a low. That's the big one. You know, so when it comes to driving, you know, again, it's, you know, it's a privilege, not a right. And that's regardless of whether you have diabetes or not. 
you know, again, we have to acknowledge that when it comes to driving. Um, but, you know, you behind the wheel of a large automobile <laughs> um, curling down the road if with a low blood sugar, um, we just don't want you to kill yourself or others, you know. And so, again, hypoglycemia is the number one reason that that can happen. And so um, we want to make sure that people understand the gravity of that and using a continuous glucose monitor um, to reduce your risk of hypoglycemia while you're driving. Now, if you're not using a CGM, um, you know, again, definitely make sure that you are at least testing your blood sugars um, at least an hour before. Because uh, again, we ideally you want your blood sugar to be above 100, um, blood sugar not dropping. But if, if you're under 100 an hour before, you're going to want to eat something, not dose for it, just to try and make sure that that blood sugar is up enough so you're not going to have hypoglycemia during driving. Now, if you're uh, with a CGM, I, I still recommend, you know, like I said, brain takes uh, 45 minutes to 60 minutes to recover from a low. So it's like, take a, take a look at that, at your, your CGM, you know, an hour before you're going to get behind the wheel. I know it's about planning. I know that that may not be practical, but, you know, again, I, I want to keep you safe. You know, I, I've heard, I, I know of, of too many really sad stories that I don't want to go into right now because this is a happy time, you know, but, you know, again, certainly we, we want to make sure that you're keeping, we're keeping you safe. Um, and so it's all about just making sure that your blood sugars aren't dropping. You're not having hypoglycemia of um, elevated blood sugar. Isn't going to have as big of an impact, you know, unless you're, you know, again, three, four hundreds and feeling like crap, of course, you know, but I'd say otherwise, you know, again, it's all about the lows that I'm worried about. Oh, and no, one more, one more thing. Cause again, I'm sorry that um, depending on the state that you live in, there may be a medical report form that needs to be filled out before you get your driver's license or you renew your license. Double check the American Diabetes Association website to see where you live. You know, again, I'm, we're, you know, we're in Illinois. And so again, we have a, a you know, the medical report form that does have to be filled out. Cause I don't want anybody up into the, the driver's place. Cause that's like a God awful place to be right now. You know, you're, you're basically living your life there for a day or two um, and then get up to the line and say, sorry, you don't have your form. And then you're, you know, you're um, SOL. So um, just make sure that before you go, um, do you need a medical report form? It needs to be signed. Um, it needs to be an original um, signed form um, from your healthcare provider. Another thing, it does not have anything to do with this, but that may be common in a situation is what should someone do if they're away from home and that they don't have a supply that they need? How would you recommend one would get something from a pharmacy if they don't have a prescription for it? Sure. No, good, good question. So, I mean, certainly um, you can do a, a bunch of things, um, but yeah, I mean, again, let's say you're, you're in a, you know, a, a cute little town in upper peninsula in Michigan, you know, again, and you're nowhere near anything. Uh, and you're like, crud, I don't have, I don't have my, my pump supplies. I don't have extra insulin. Um, you know, so again, you can, um, you know, very, uh, you know, little known fact is that you can go into like a Walmart um, and purchase over the counter regular insulin and MPH insulin. Now that's really old school insulin, you know, uh, regular insulin um, works a lot longer. It takes a lot longer to work than all the rapid actings like Humalog, Novolog, um, Apidra, Fiasp, uh, Lumjev, you know, all of those that are out on the market. Um, but again, it's going to keep you safe, you know, and then same with NPH. It's just an old school version of like Lantus, Basiglar, Tracebo kind of stuff. Um, you know, again, yeah, it's, it's not going to be perfect, but, you know, again, you could certainly... Um, you can 
get those over the counter. Um, but, you know, of course, you know, once you do this, you're never going to forget all the stuff again. You know, <laughs> that's one thing that we do tend to find, but making sure that, you know, again, um, have a list, you know, of all the stuff that you, you truly need. And, you know, I mean, I generally say bring a couple syringes, um, always bring some extra insulin, um, you know, always pack a couple extra infusion sets um, and or pods, you know, again, or, and, or um, cartridges and reservoirs, you know, again, um, but, you know, I, certainly preparation is going to be, is going to be key um, to do that. But certainly in the event you say, Oh crap, I forgot. I don't know what happens, you know, again, and I was watching um, the movie. I, I can't remember now. Crud, I forgot the name of the movie with Gerard Butler. Um, and it's this kid with diabetes and they forgot all of his insulin supplies. And so again, the mom was like rushing to a pharmacy to get it, you know, again, Greenland, it was called Greenland, um, and, you know, and end of the world kind of stuff. It was awful, but, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, going to a pharmacy and picking up like NPH or regular uh, without a prescription is possible. Another thing that I tend to deal with a lot is knowing when the issue is the pump or when I just have to be patient. Do you have any advice on how to know if it's the technology or user error? No, and you know, I'd say um, I want to. I want to start off with, by saying, you know, again, and I, I know how frustrating all of that is for all of you, uh, but be kind to yourselves because, again, you know, there are forty to fifty different things that affect your blood sugar at any one time. Okay, so uh, the reason I'm saying that is, you know, don't always blame yourself. You know, we, we're all going to have WTF moments. I mean, we have to acknowledge that. Um, but, you know, again, certainly when it comes to, is it technology? And it really has more to do with, is there something wrong with the infusion site? <laughs> um, or, you know, is it that, wow, I really, really enjoyed what I was eating and whoops, I forgot to, I forgot to bolus. Now, one thing that, that I tend to recommend is, you know, again, that keto, if you're on an insulin pump, you know, and you're only using rapid acting insulin. Um, you know, again, that's where you, there's a heightened risk of ketoacidosis, because again, if you're without insulin for a couple hours, that's when it kicks in. If you're taking basal insulin, you have a little more, you have a little more wiggle room because again, your, your long acting insulin is in the background and it just kind of keeps you safe. Um, so you, you can, you can be a little more patient, you know, as you said, Jackie, because one thing that we have to acknowledge about insulin is that it is all about patients. The insulin that we use is not as fast as we'd like it to be. It's not as fast as the pancreas. And so, you know, again, when we think of all of the goals that are set for all of you, you know, again, I'm sure you all heard like four meals, we need our blood sugars around 130, uh, you know, one hour under 180, two hour, you know, under 140, you know, and so again, all of those, all of those guidelines, um, you know, when we think of how insulin works, so rapid acting insulin, uh, again, it, it starts working as soon as you bolus or inject it, it starts working in about five to 15 minutes. It's going to have a peak, meaning its strongest activity is about an hour and a half later. And then basically it's will be done with what it was supposed to be doing within about three to five hours. So what does that mean for all of you? You know, when your glucose levels are high and like, well, you know, WTF, what am I supposed to do here? You know, again, if it is just a, oops, I forgot to bolus um, too much, um, you should start seeing at least the arrow coming down um, about an hour later, meaning that the insulin is starting to work. It's not going to be back to your goal. That's really important that you understand that just because you, uh, you know, you gave this, this dose, it's not going to be immediate. You know, it's going to take, 
you know, like I said, an hour and a half, even two hours to even have as good of an impact to kind of bring that blood sugar down. But at one hour, you should start seeing a little bit of movement or the arrow flat or something along those lines. Um, so that, that's the one thing that I would say, uh, you know, again, if there's something wrong with your site at one hour, if, you know, the number isn't flat or going down and it's just basically screaming up, then it's a site issue. So, you know, again, have a little patience because it's really, you know, look at one hour, but knowing that that peak or strongest activity of your insulin is about an hour and a half to two hours later. And so, you know, again, you got to give it just a little bit of time. And then to go along with that, when you know that blood sugars are not being perfect all the time, when do you know that it is time to make changes to your correction ratio or insulin to carb or basal rate, et cetera? Sure. And um, I just want to comment one thing, you know, again, it's all about the, it's all about the words. Um, There's no such thing as perfect. I I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but you know, again, your glucose levels are are changing all the time. And, you know, as you're growing, your hormones are changing and remember the 40 to 50 different things that affect your blood sugar at one time. So again, I just, I, I don't want to promote mediocrity. And uh, again, I, I want to be very clear about that. But again, I also don't want to set you guys up for failure. Um, perf- perfection is an illusion when it comes to everything in our life. You know, there is no perfect. So, you know, again, understand that there are going to be hiccups um, and that's okay. Remember, you know, what we look at is we're trying to prevent long-term complications 10, 15 years after you've, you've gotten diabetes. How do we do that? time and range. If you're 70% or more time and range between 70 and 180, and again, we are making sure that you are staying safe and you're going to live a long, healthy life. So again, I just wanted to kind of set the stage there for a second. But now, um, knowing as a teenager, you have all these hormone changes and um, all of these things that are going on and, you know, lack of sleep and all of these things that are going to affect your blood sugars. Um, you know, again, it's inevitable that your, your basils, your carb ratios, your correction factors, um, your basal insulin may all need to be changed far more frequently than every three months. Um, but how do you figure that out? Um, well, we figure out that, you know, the easy one is looking at, you know, after meal blood sugars, you know, for, for carb ratios and correction factors. So the general rule is if you have the right carb ratio or correction factor, you have to look at them separately because you can't do it together because that's like an F show. Um, but if you're doing, you know, you're looking at that at two hours, your blood sugar should be within about 30 to 50 points of your goal blood sugar. And looking at that over the course of a week or so, you know, again, in the events that you're seeing that that's consistently elevated or low, um, it's telling us that that carb ratio and or that correction factor is off. And so then a change may be needed. Basils are sometimes a little bit harder to kind of navigate because there's so many things that are going on. Um, but, you know, the overnights are a really nice way to, to kind of look at because you're not eating or bolusing or anything. Um, but again, if the blood sugars are greater than 30 points um, from each other, um, then it tells us that the basils are um, need to be adjusted. Typically, you know, as I said, uh, rapid acting insulin, um, you know, again, peaks in about one and a half, two hours. So again, if you're going to make a basal change, you're going to make the change two hours prior to where you want to affect that change. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, sure. And as the system becomes more and more popular, have you had any experience working with patients with a closed loop system, even if it's been like a do it yourself or it's been something that has been released and FDA approved? Yeah, no, no. Um, we have 
hundreds and hundreds of people that are using the hybrid closed loop or automated insulin delivery systems. Uh, but we do have, uh, you know, again, at least maybe two dozen people, maybe 30 people that are using the do-it-yourselves. Um, you know, not as many because you have two, you have two things. You know, we have those that are doing the do-it-yourself with, with Omnipod, and then we have the do-it-yourself with like the old school Medtronic pumps. So we have a couple people doing that. Um, you know, and you know, the one thing about the do-it-yourselves is that you know um, we aren't involved in a lot of the training. So it really is, you know, the, the you know on all of you uh, to to kind of keep up on all of that, um, and you know know the cookbook back and forth and, you know, again, making sure that, you know, the updates and all of that. So, you know, I'm only really involved kind of on the back end of here, let's make changes to, you know, your, your basal limits or your carb ratios and things like that. So I'm helping with that. Um, and, you know, the, the same with the hybrid closeups, you know, again, I, I have to say, I feel that they are such valuable tools. And I am really looking forward to the FDA approved, you know, Omnipod 5 that's coming out. Um, because again, I think it's going to build on all of the successes that we're seeing with the current hybrid closed loops. What I like about, you know, in tandem in particular is that, you know, for the first time in as long as I've been doing this, um, I hear people saying, you know, I don't have to think about diabetes as much, you know, and it makes me so happy to hear that, you know, because I mean, it's exhausting for all of you to have to think about this 24 hours a day. These devices, um, you know, help you with those extra 40 to 50 things that are affecting your blood sugar that we can't account for. Um, it, you know, it kind of helps in the background. So again, I really do feel um, that it is a leap forward for people, you know, and again, I understand that a lot of people don't want to go to a tube system yet. And so that's where, you know, Hopefully the Omnipod 5 will be coming out soon because that'll be awesome for all of you Omnipod users. Um, but, you know, again, it, it is, it's a lovely, lovely system. It really works so well over there. The one thing that I do have to say, though, is for those who drink alcohol, it, it can't necessarily account for that as well. And so, again, we sometimes have to um, do alternate measures of like reducing the amount of, of basal or turning off the control IQ. Um, so at least they don't have hyperglycemia because again, um, I don't want the pump giving insulin when, you know, when they shouldn't be getting it. Uh, and the same with um, sports. Uh, so again, if somebody is involved in, um, you know, you know, extended amounts of time uh, with sports or some kind of exercise, it sometimes can't always keep up. So we have, you know, little idiosyncrasies, but you know, again, I'd say certainly all things that are manageable, but one really important thing about all of these systems, it, they take time. And, you know, again, we it, learning something new is going to take time to kind of you know, get yourself used to it. And you talked about the effects of alcohol. What would that do to a person's blood sugar? Typically a drink, takes about an hour for the liver to process. So again, one thing that we have to understand is that our liver stores all of your sugar. Um, it gives you sugar throughout the day. That is kind of what your basal is also um, working off of. So your basal rate is accounting for the, the glucose is coming from the liver. When you drink alcohol, the liver stops doing everything else except processing that alcohol. So it means that your liver's out of commission, not giving you glucose for about an hour for every drink. So two really important pieces there is that, all right, this could mess with 
you know, your basal might be giving you too much and cause hypoglycemia. And the second thing is that glucagon does not work because your liver is out of commission. <laughs> so again, really, really important having a plan. Generally speaking, what I recommend for, for patients is, you know, again, if you're using a hyperclosal, I do recommend not using it. Um, and then setting a temp basal of, of 50% equal in hours to the number of drinks, um, cutting all other boluses in half to reduce risk of hypoglycemia. Um, and then, you know, if somebody's on a basal insulin, um, you know, again, usually decreasing that if they're taking it at nighttime, um, you know, one unit um, for every one or two drinks. Now, one other really important piece though, is that for those of you that are taking Tujeo or Traceba, those ultra long acting insulins, um, they have something called steady state, meaning that you make a change. It's not necessarily going to go into effect for three days. So changing Tujeo and Traceba in relation to those things, or even exercise may not work as well, because again, it's affecting your blood sugars three days from now. So, And this is our last question. I know that you enjoy traveling both for work and vacation. Can you tell us some of your favorite places that you've been? My goodness, that is a, you know, I have to say one of my favorite, favorite places in the world is Egypt. I've been to Egypt eight times, nine times, might have been nine times. Egypt is my number one on my list. Australia is just amazing, um, regardless of where you are um, in that continent. I strongly encourage that all of you, you know, traveling with diabetes is easy peasy. Pre-planning, but again, definitely, you know, again, once once the world opens up again, you know, again, there's some great places for all of you to go to. All right. Thank you so much for being on here. Ah, it is my pleasure. Thank you for asking me, Jackie. And yeah. everybody for listening. I, I hope this was helpful. That's all for today. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, or just want to say hi, don't hesitate to reach out. You can email me at teen.t1d at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at teen1dpodcast. If you like my podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review as it really does help me out. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to tune into next week's episode. Have a great week.